We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This time on Vet Story. You were an Air Force pilot during Vietnam, and you're a guy that likes to hunt and fish. All of those things are correct, yes. <laughs> And he's got a small ranch up in the mountains. And he was showing me uh, one picture after another of the elk that he had seen that morning. Uh, one of them was an eight by eight. I just had never seen anything that large. And he said, oh yeah, they're up there quite a bit. Our Native American friends have ranches that where they do game hunting and the tags on those big elk will sometimes run 25,000. Let's take care of the guys and, and the women inside the state who, who hunt and, and are veterans. Sometimes we'd be flying away from where the, the action was. Sometimes we'd be flying right into the action. Mm-hmm. Uh, took gunfire uh, many times into the C-130s. Uh, but we were at Karat Air Force Base in Thailand, and they called us trash haulers. And so we obligingly referred to them as the fighter pukes, and so always you have that tension. There are aircraft carrier landings where you pour beer on the bar and you go sliding down and you go off the end of the bar. I just am thankful every day. I'm just thankful to God that I made it home safely. Uh, But I do want to remember the kids that didn't make it home. Welcome back to Vet Story. I'm your host, Phil Briggs. And before we get started with this week's episode, I just want to remind you, find us in iTunes and click on that subscribe button. And if you're not into iTunes, you can find us on radio.com. You can put that app on your phone as well and just find us under V for Vet Story or via ConnectingVets.com. I'm eager to bring you this show every single Friday as we talk to some great guests. And uh, on the horizon, I've got a new book called Mastering Fear by former Navy SEAL, and SEAL Sniper Instructor Brandon Webb. If the name sounds familiar, he's also the founder of SoftRep.com and his new site, NewsRep.com. But we're going to talk about Mastering Fear and how the principles of that book apply to everyone's life. Military veteran, spouse, son, daughter, parent, uh, you know, your boss could probably stand to read this book, but it's called Mastering Fear, and uh, we're going to do a deep dive with the author, former Navy SEAL Brandon Webb, and that'll drop next Friday. All right, now this episode that we're about to hear really caught me by surprise. I was really just intending to do a quick interview with a congressman who's about to run for governor of New Mexico. Representative Steve Pierce, a Vietnam-era Air Force veteran, and I talked about free deer hunting. And I thought anytime I can talk about deer hunting, I will. And, uh, you know, free. I mean, that sounds great, right? But when we got into the interview, we ended up talking about his service in Vietnam. And the stories were everything that Vet Story is about. Stories from the battlefield to the bar stools. And I think you'll agree. The stories he told us about what they did to a certain colonel's Jeep in Vietnam are the things movies are made of. This is Steve Pierce. I am the congressman from the 2nd District of New Mexico, running for governor. Thank you for joining me on Vet Story, Congressman. Yes, always good talking to you, Phil. 
for those that don't know and are not familiar, I'll do a recap here in just four bullet points. You're a congressman. You're a candidate for governor of the great state of New Mexico. You were an Air Force pilot during Vietnam, and you're a guy that likes to hunt and fish. All of those things are correct, yes. <laughs> you know what? Hunting and fishing, let's start there, because uh, I saw a very small news clip that I actually noticed in a big way. And as I was scrolling through Google looking for veteran-related news, I happened to come across this small story from Santa Fe, New Mexico newspaper, and um, it quoted you as saying that instead of selling all deer tags in New Mexico to out-of-state residents for a few shekels, which I thought was a funny reference, uh, you said, let's give them to the people who served us. Tell me about your plan for free hunting and fishing for veterans in the land of enchantment, New Mexico. Well, it's just a way for us to say that we respect the obligations that we ask you to take on. You know, every veteran who comes out of the military has made at some point a signed an agreement that is due and payable up to and including the cost of their life. And many times we say, uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, you made it through okay and it didn't cost you anything, so it's like it doesn't count. And I'm just saying, you know, New Mexico has tremendous hunting. we got fishing uh, and Let's let's honor our veterans. We only charge like 10 or 12, 15 bucks, so it's not that much out of the veteran's pocket. It is the symbolism that's important. Let's say that New Mexico appreciates our veterans and what we ask you to do before. And the fact that it didn't cost you your life, that still uh, we still ask you to do it. And so let's just respect and honor the, those promises that we, we have uh, obligated ourselves to our veterans. Great point. And as a fellow veteran, I appreciate you there. Um, you say some of the deer tags typically go to out-of-staters, or, or, or rather there's a large appetite for out-of-state residents to come to New Mexico and hunt. Um, explain to me kind of why that is. Like the states, the big wide-open states, Colorado, uh, New Mexico, uh, Texas, I think of when I think of hunting. What is the hunting like out there? And, and, and do you have a large consumer base that comes from out-of-state and eats up all these deer tags? We do. We have a good uh, good group that come from all over the country, and, and we appreciate that. And they're certainly not my target. My target is let's take care of New Mexicans first. Let's honor those people who have served uh, and who have committed uh, to serve very valiantly. Then let's honor them. The, uh, the hunting is tremendous. I was just sitting yesterday with a friend of mine. And he's got a small ranch up in the mountains. It's not a destination ranch or anything. And he was showing me uh, one picture after another of the elk that he had seen that morning. Uh, one of them was an eight by eight. Uh, it was stunning. And all of them were in the same range. So it was. It looked like about five or six in sequence who had just wandered past uh, that are in the at least seven by seven, eight by eight range. I just had never seen anything that large. And he said, oh, yeah, they're up there quite a bit. Uh, and it's not like it's unusual. The uh, the tags, our Native American friends have ranches that where they do game hunting, and the tags on those big elk will sometimes run 25000 So it's a good source of revenue for them. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about the everyday hunt where you go out and you, you, you have to draw a tag. New Mexico has got a lot of public lands. We have about 30% of the state is federal. About 30% is in the state hands. And so that's one reason we're attractive to out-of-staters is that we've got these big swaths of public land. And I appreciate that and respect it, and we want to protect that. Uh, but that's one reason that we get a lot of out-of-staters. 
And so, again, rather than giving everything to out-of-staters, let's take care of the guys and, and the women inside the state who, who hunt and, and are veterans. Mm. Well, that's a great point. Well-received. And uh, I got to say, uh, the, the, the visions of elk, you know, when I watch the big game hunt shows on Discovery Channel and on TV and whatnot, Travel Channel, uh, you know, we hunt whitetail. <laughs> where I'm from, and uh, we go up into Pennsylvania, and you know they look so small compared to the big elk and a big old eight point, which your meaning is really a sixteen point. Uh, yeah, I can just imagine, man. That that has to be a thrill. Yeah, that was the elk that I was talking about, the eight by eight, and you just never see that. Uh, the deer, you will get uh, sixteen, uh, eighteen point deer, and then uh, just magnificent racks. But uh, that you you know normally a four by four on the elk is going to be. Uh, kind of average and occasionally hit the five the six by six but no rarely rarely a seven by seven i never i've never seen an eight by eight not even a picture of one and here was kind of a whole slew of them just walking by the guy <laughs> by this guy that morning all of these are great points and uh, they come to us as part of the gubernatorial campaign that you're running and i was curious now because i've seen this with a couple other veterans and seen this with a couple other folks on the hill is your term in Congress getting ready to end and you want to continue to serve by going home to New Mexico? Or how can you kind of have both jobs, candidate and congressman, um, at the same time? How does that work? It's uh, It just takes uh, tremendous uh, dedication and discipline. Uh, the My term is through the end of the year, and it's not like I was kind of disappointed in Congress. I've been there seven terms, and we're doing some pretty dramatically good stuff uh, for the state and for my district but we felt like this governor that we'd even have more of a stand. Uh, I want to protect our public lands. I want to protect the hunting. I want to protect our gun rights. I uh, just don't want us to tax people into oblivion. So our service as congressman actually merges very well into this run for governor. And and people know my service, so they know that I fight for everyday people all the time. I tell people I didn't go to Washington to fight, but when you get there, you realize the agencies are really overwhelming just the average everyday citizen. And so I've been, I have stood up in some fights have taken 15 years to get resolved between the government and an individual where they're trying to, to take away their rights, whether it's water or maybe a fence line or whatever it is. And so uh, we just feel like that fighting for everyday people is one of the big things I do. Talk to me about one of the proudest accomplishments you had while being a congressman for seven terms. Well, the... Uh, the water case that I'm talking about, uh, 15 years, uh, the Goss family up in Weed, New Mexico, it, it's so far out in the middle of nowhere, and people typically don't even pay attention to it. I met my first year in Congress, 2003, just this humble little couple. They were in their late 60s or early 70s then. They had been fighting the government 40 years on the water at their expense, and it's very expensive to go to court. They've gone to the courts, and the court said, yes, it's their water. The Forest Service said to the gosses after the court said it's their water, they said, yeah, maybe your water, but it's our 23 acres around it. So they fenced in their 23 acres and said, now see if you can get to your water. So the gosses have to pay and collect more money and figure out how to pay for it, go back to court. Uh, and the court said, okay, they don't have the implied right to walk their cows on your 23 acres, but they do have the implied right to put their, to put a little pipeline or or a ditch and take their water to their cows. The Forest Service responded by electrifying the fence. So I got involved somewhere in that period there because they had been fighting 40 years, 30 years before I got there. 
And and so I got involved. And even as a congressman, we couldn't make them give access to the water. So about two and a half years ago, uh, we went out and, and I had the highest level forest guy in New Mexico, the person over that forest, and then the superintendent who wouldn't give the access to the land. And we were standing out there for a three-hour meeting looking over that in, in the forest on a dirt road. No desk, no nothing, no uh, three-piece suits were standing out there in the sweltering summer sun. Somewhere about the three-hour point, they decided they probably ought to let the guy have access to his water. And that is, it, it's symbolic that, that we able, were able finally to get the resolution to a problem that the bureaucrats simply said that nobody is more powerful than we are. Just recently, the same sort of a deal, a guy was trying to mine minerals. They, the minerals were actually taken out of the mountain back in the 1890s, and the price of gold and iron fell. So they just left them there. So he's got $28 million worth of minerals he can bring down. Now, the price of gold and iron are high enough that it's worth it. He's got to go over 600 feet of BLM roadway in about a 30-mile range. 600 feet goes over BLM, and they wouldn't let him move the material. So that was going to cost us about 4,000 jobs here in New Mexico. And uh, somewhere up close to the White House level, as I explained the problem, he called about two weeks ago and said, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I'm moving over again. I said, you don't need to know what happened. I said, I don't even need to know what happened, uh, but just keep moving over. And uh, we're going to we're going to help you uh, get that business going because we need the jobs in New Mexico. Wow. And that really sort of captures where bureaucracy fails to see on paper the meaning or the simplicity of just, hey, it's 600 feet of dirt road. Let them use it to transport, you know, mining rights and minerals and and in doing so by lifting that legislative grip or that bureaucratic grip that they have on that little piece of land that little swath of road uh you can affect yep. a, a huge change with just something as simple as come on man let's get common sense to rain yeah and there's uh and and so to get the sound you, you many people just don't understand how offensive and arrogant the agencies are so back 20 years ago, uh, there was a frack, that's a base realignment and closure. So they shut down Fort Wingate, which was an army depot, stored munitions and things. It was out in that period, that area of country you were talking about is so fascinating out uh, towards the Navajo Reservation, uh, those big rock cliffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's right in there. And so just magnificent place. And uh, they shut it down, and the, the law said we'll distribute the land equitably between the Navajo and Zuni tribes. Well, Zunis are my constituents, and so I worked for 15 years on that, trying to get it done. A couple of years ago, finally, finally got one sentence into a bill saying start the distribution now because they never would give that land away. The government wouldn't. So we got it into the law saying that you got to start in January. So we got the bill passed in December. We'll come back in January after Christmas make the call and say we're distributing land. And uh, so now there's some problem. What do you mean there's a problem? Anyway, so we get to threading back through it, and the colonel over there at the, uh, the in charge of the land said, well, uh, the congressman in his sentence here in the bill used the word closure, and we don't know what the word closure means. So I got him on the phone. I said, uh, see, see if we can get together. I said, I understand you have a problem with understanding what the word closure means. He said, yes, sir, it's got several definitions. And We're just not sure what that means. I said, okay, fine. I said, I think I can help you out. I said, I'm going to go to my friend, the appropriating committee chairman, and I'm going to zero out the funds for you and for your office, and I I think you will know what closure means. 
He said, I'm getting a much clearer idea. If you don't mind, I'll send that letter out today. <laughs> so just those, it's that sort of obstinate attitude that, uh, that I feel like that I'm dealing with. And as governor, we can open a lot more doors and just cause government to work properly. Forget how powerful you are in government. Forget all that. Let's just make our system work. And that's what people want. Wow. So interesting to hear somebody from the inside explain the dynamics of uh, what really go on. Now, let's go back in time a little bit uh, and talk about your service history, because it's because it's really interesting. And, and it makes me wonder how a guy from a small little place in southern New Mexico ends up in the Air Force in the Vietnam era. But after finishing New Mexico State with an econ degree, um, you joined the Air Force during the Vietnam era and became a pilot. How does one go from, you know, that background to serving the country as a pilot? Well, it uh, was a fairly simple transition, one that wasn't totally voluntary. I was a junior at New Mexico State University in 1967. Got a call from the draft board saying, hey, you won the lottery last night, and uh, we want you to drive down to El Paso this morning, take your physical. And I said, ma'am, I'm going places. I'm going to graduate, and I'm going to go into this. And she said, you're going places, son. You're going to Vietnam now. Get down there and take that uh, thing. Oh, so I went down and I uh, said, how about if I get into, well, actually, I said, how about if I get married? She said, I, I didn't even have a girlfriend. I was talking on my head, man. And uh, she said, those deferments have already ended. And I said, graduate degree, I'm going to get, she, I wasn't sure I was even going to finish my, <laughs> a master of my undergraduate. And she said, those deferments ended too, son. You get down there. And I said, ROTC, I was just throwing stuff. She said, I'll give you 24 hours. If you get into ROTC, uh, you'll be okay. I was just wanting to finish college. And so I ran down to uh, get into that. Now, keep in mind, I grew up in a small five-acre farm. Kind of the fastest thing I'd ever driven was like a, a little farm all tractor. I go down there, and they said, well, uh, we, you know, we talked to you last year, and you didn't want to go because you didn't want to fly, and that's the only positions we got available now. I said, how come uh, you got those positions available? They said, well, because we're killing so many. And I thought, that ain't exactly what I'm looking for in life. And so I went back to my dorm room and thought that lady would forget me. She called 24 hours on the dot said, son, did you get in that ROTC? You know how excited you are and you start in the middle of a sentence and trying to talk too fast. I said, yeah, ma'am, ma'am, you don't understand. They only needed pilots. And it's because they're killing so many pilots. She said, son, they're killing them on the ground, too. Now you get down to El Paso. I said, if you don't mind, ma'am, I'm going to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot more than anything else in my life. And that's how I got into the flying. I went back down, signed up, and I still fly myself. Flew myself around the world solo two years ago. And uh, and just, it was one of the best trips I ever took. It took a small plane, pulled the two rear seats out, put two 55-gallon drums behind me, filled them full of high-octane fuel, and uh, flew around the world in 15 days, 26,000 miles. Wow. <laughs> that's... Wow, that's awesome. And dare I say, that's a bold move as a pilot to try to cover that kind of distance. And I've heard from other Vietnam-era pilots, uh, there's old pilots and bold pilots, but there's no such thing as an old, bold pilot. So I... <laughs> <laughs> that is true. But you know what I did it for, Phil, is uh, I had been approaching the 50th anniversary of our graduation from high school, and I graduated in 1965. And the biggest lost years were 66, 67, and 68. If you go to the wall, that's where the most names are. And so my class, you graduate 65, you dodge a draft for two or three months. They get you, they send you to boot camp. You end up in uh, Vietnam in 19, at the end of 65, early 66. 
And so our class was exposed to the three heaviest years. And sure enough, from the nine people who did not return home from Vietnam, five of them were from my class. Mm. And so I wanted to do more than just go to the cemetery on, on Memorial Day for that 50th anniversary. I made a commitment. And so that trip, uh, it was it was an aspiration of mine. It was something that was deeply fulfilling to me. But the deeper purpose was to remember and do a pilgrimage sort of in my head and my heart to remember the kids who didn't come home. And as I'd go around the world and I'd be stopping and I'd arrive some places in the middle of the night, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, be looking for fuel. They could see I was just worn out. It, uh, it didn't matter if they're young, old, male, female, Muslim, Christian. They just Everybody had the same question. Captain, why are you out here flying this little plane? And I said, I just want to remember. I want to remember kids that, uh, that didn't get to live their life. I said, it doesn't matter if they're Americans or your kids or uh, from your country. And without a, with, with no, no hesitation, every single person around the world who asked me that said, Captain, that's bigger than you and me. So this, this really deep part in the human psyche, it's not from one culture to the next. It's all humans. There's a, a piece in us that wants to remember those who sacrifice more than, than we do. So I bring that all the way back around to say the least we can do is do this small gesture of a hunting or a fishing license for our veterans. Mm. Amen. Amen. And I thank you very much, Captain Pierce. Share with me just a picture real quick, if you could, like in your mind. Help me picture what were some of the conditions you were flying in? Well, we we flew C-130s, and I was flying a C-130. We just flew all through South Vietnam and, and Thailand. Many of the, the sorties would originate in Thailand and go into Vietnam. Um, I felt like, I mean, I just, that was the, the when I graduated from pilot training, uh, there were very few fighters available. And of course, the fighters are sexy, but the, that piece of the war was spinning down. So there was just one or two of those. They went to the very top graduates. I was down about uh, 13th or so. I did. I felt like the war was the big thing of my generation, and so, so I chose the only thing to get to the war, and that was a C-130. Felt like it was pretty safe. Actually, a couple of years ago, I came on a book, and more C-130 crew members were lost than any others uh, because they were slow. There were no defense mechanisms. They had crews on them. But in 1972, uh, we were scheduled to come home, and they canceled our orders. My whole unit was coming home. They canceled everyone's orders and said, y'all are going to go in country and fly at a little place called Anlock and Contum. You just never knew those kind of things. You just, uh, when history is shaping, the, the names haven't become familiar. And But what was going on was General Geop's Easter Tide Offensive. Uh, he was putting on like 150,000 soldiers. They were starting at Quang Tree, which was up way up north on the border, and then Anlock and Contum, he was going to try to divide the entire country right down the middle, and the communists would control one part, and and then they would take over the entire country. So that was our mission. As one of the single guys, all the married guys, got uh, got held back there, and they were dealing with how the, the wives had already gone and gone back to the U.S., and so they were having to take care of things dealing with families. So the single guys, and I was one of them, uh, four of us were headed in to fly those missions. We got into Cameron Bay. 
they said, oh, by the way, we're going to transfer y'all. Y'all are going to go up and fly out of Thailand and, and kind of a routine mission. And the, the C-130s out of CCK or out of uh, Taiwan are going to fly fly this mission here to Anlock Kantum. In the next 30 days, then uh, five C-130s were shot down. The, the crews were lost. And so that's the sort of conditions that we faced, that every day you're just there. You just didn't know what was going to happen. Now, I know that Providence redirected me, and I did not face one of the times when I don't think I would have survived is with four crews being the initial ones in, and we were told you'll stay there till you're replaced. Uh, you just say, okay, the odds would not have been good to be uh, to get all the way through that with those those five planes being shot down. Uh, but we we would sometimes be flying away from where the the action was. Sometimes be flying right into the action. Mm. Uh, took gunfire uh, many times into the C-130s. And of course, they're pretty sturdy and stable. And uh, just uh, those were the conditions that that I faced. Other people had it much worse. Other people a little bit easier. But it just depends on where you're assigned and and what the duties are, uh, where you are. And so we. I just am thankful every day. I'm just thankful to God that I made it home safely. Uh, but I do want to remember the kids that didn't make it home. Yeah, man. And it's why we raise our hand. It's why that oath is so powerful. And it's why we're a brotherhood, even if you didn't serve in that era. It's why we look back and reflect on all of our Vietnam veteran brothers and sisters and, and, and just have the utmost respect for them. And I'm glad to see that, uh, you know, the world and for, for that matter, the country has really, you know, woken up and, and, and feels feels that same sort of reverence towards your era. Um, if I could ask, is there any sort of fun story, any, any sort of like interesting, because the topic of vet story sometimes goes from the battlefield to the bar stool, is how I phrase it. Um, were there any times while you were there in Nam that, uh, you know, was like something on the lighthearted side happened? You guys commandeered an air conditioner for a tent you shouldn't have, or you found a Paps Blue Ribbon case in the middle of the jungle? I mean, <laughs> were there any moments like well, that? Well, a couple of things that, uh, so we did, we were always tenants, uh, as C-130s, we were the tenant organization. Usually the bases were fighter bases. And so there was a tension between, uh, the fighter guys and they called us trash haulers. And so we obligingly referred to them as the fighter pukes. And so always you had that tension. Uh, but we were at Karat Air Force Base in Thailand. And it was, uh, they had their big, you know, they were doing all their, their aircraft carrier landings where you pour beer on the bar and you go sliding down and you go off the end of the bar. And it, anyway, so it was kind of a wild fracas. And I see one thirty guys, we never did much of that. But, uh, while all that was going on in the background, we walked outside and the, the Colonel had his V his Jeep there and, uh, had his, Colonel wings on that. And so the loud noises and everybody's braggadocious in there and all the fighter pukes and all that junk. So we turned the, we picked up the, uh, the gen, the Colonel's Jeep, turned it on its side, pulled it in, carried it into the, the kind of the ante room before you got into the bar and then put it there on its, uh, on its wheels. Uh, that caused some dismay, uh, <laughs> the next morning when the Colonel couldn't get his Jeep out the door and the, General was warning why he can't come to morning briefing. So uh, nobody exactly knew who did that, and I'm not admitting that I had anything. To do oh with no, that. no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then another time, we uh, we were flying in. We were supposed to go into camera or into uh, Cambodia, uh, and and 
you know, Nixon was saying we do not have troops in and around Cambodia. Uh, we were headed into Cambodia that day, and we picked up the ambassador's family. The communists were circling Phnom Penh, and we had three or four uh, flights that we're going to carry into there. And so it probably wasn't the smartest thing I ever did, but I wore jeans and, and a shirt uh, underneath. Uh, you just you were in this remote area. It was war. Things were a little bit, you know, some of the regulations got stretched here and there. And so I, uh, at, on the second trip in, well, I told the aircraft commander, look, you got two more trips in. I said, I'm going to jump off here. I'm going to run downtown while y'all go back out and drop our passes, and you'll be back here in about an hour and a half, and I'll meet you back here. He uh, didn't think that was the best idea I ever heard, but I didn't. I couldn't imagine being in Phnom Penh it was, and uh, the communists coming in surrounding, and we're there evacuating people out, and I just wanted to see downtown, and so I jumped, I jumped into the back of the plane, stripped off the flight suit, had my jeans underneath, went downtown Phnom Penh. Uh, about an hour and a half later, saw the C-130 coming across the skies, Ran back out there, met them, and uh, just you know things like that, that. That when I tell the State Department today what I did, they they just walk away. They can't. They they, they have to unravel <laughs> stuff like that. And of course, for a young uh, lieutenant uh, in in combat, and you just don't know what the next day is going to bring. You do things that that maybe are not well advised, but they stick in your mind for the rest of your life. That I'm not sorry I did that. And I can see you there, downtown, in jeans and a Hawaiian shirt, running around. The only, you know, the only white guy for miles. And there you are. Yeah. You know, you looking evacuating for- <laughs> all the rest of them. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. You're a great storyteller, Congressman. I got to say, I could sit and talk to you about this for days. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, it. you know, on the back end of this, I want to kind of compare and contrast where we are now with the global war on terror and a lot of these guys, a lot of guys coming back just like your era did with the PTSD and with just the invisible wounds of war. And I know that luckily now we're paying so much more attention to it than we did in your era. And I really want your take on a bill that was introduced by Congressman Waltz from Minnesota. It was the VA Medicinal Research or the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act of 2018, and it got out of the Veterans Affairs Committee in the House. But somehow, it just never got voted on the floor. And, you know, I know you're kind of looking down the, you know, the back nine of your time in Congress, but where are you on that? And what can we do to get something like that moved forward? Because I think we're seeing some of the efficacy of using cannabis to treat some of this PTSD. But really, this bill is just asking the VA to do some research. They're not even asking them to distribute it or to prescribe it. Is there anything you can do to get this bill voted on, move to the Senate, and start having a real conversation about making the VA research the use of cannabis to help our warfighters? We will uh, take a look. I... I, I would just tell you, growing up in my generation, uh, when I graduated high school and went to college, it was exactly that six-month period when when marijuana began to explode nationwide. And so as I look in the rearview mirror of life, I see a lot of lives that were not productively handled because they drifted into first marijuana and then the other drugs. Sure. got to see that heavily in Vietnam. So I will tell you this honestly, that most of my life I was suspicious of the medical qualities of of cannabis, but I have had friends who have known my entire life say, look, here's what it's doing for me. So those personal evaluations have caused a change in my opinion, and I'm really supportive of the idea that uh, that, uh, medical cannabis does help 
and so I'm not willing to to uh, push against that uh, like I would have 20 years ago. It's just a different point of view than what I grew up with. Uh, the but the idea of the PTSD is something that that we really take for granted. And probably the most stark thing that happened was when I ran for Congress in 2002. So I'm I'm up. Uh, I've been out of high school and college a long time. Uh, and I get one of my friends who went to Vietnam about the same time as I did, uh, graduated with me. And he came up and said, look, I'm happy you're going to Congress. And he said, just let me ask one thing. He said, when you get there, don't forget the PTSD. He said, if, if I could have seen one therapist, he said, maybe I could have lived a productive life. I will tell you, to be in your late 50s and to hear your friends say, maybe I could have lived a productive life just echoes in my head every day. So my commitment as governor is that we're going to test every one of our kids coming home, uh, and we're going to find out who is suffering and who's not. If you're suffering, we're going to get attention. If you work with PTSD right then, like my friend said, if I could have, I think I could have lived a life. We're going to make sure that, that we get the therapist with the folks that come back from combat and are suffering PTSD. Uh, it's debilitating for those who who wrestle with it. And and it's understandable. We teach kids, young kids, uh, 17, 18, 19, 20, to go and kill the enemy. And then we want them to come back and uh, just put themselves into society like we've been on an afternoon picnic. And it does not work easily or well. And so there should be a reintegration period when the last maybe six months, maybe we keep people on active duty. And with six months, uh, we're, we're doing reintegration. Something has to change because we're losing so many of our young men and women to suicides. They just can't handle the, the traumas. So whatever we can do to transition to facilitate the reentry into normal everyday life, I'm willing to do. Now, one of the things that I'm uh, really working with a couple of groups uh, we've got a lot of animals out here, a lot of ranches, a lot of dairies. You know, when I got back from Vietnam, I just wanted to be out of my dad's five-acre farm. Wanted to feed the pigs, milk the cow, uh, grow crops, put corn in the ground, squash, just and then harvest it. That growing of stuff was really therapeutic for me. So I'm uh, contemplating how we can use these big ranches in our agriculture basis to get our veterans back, to get them just growing things, maybe that uh, will be the healing that a lot of them need. So we have an entire system kind of forethought out that that we're going to, every every uh, one of our veterans is struggling, we're going to have something for them. And I think that's what we're called to do. There is something very cathartic about getting your hands in the dirt, uh, just being out there. I know myself, I'm an outdoor enthusiast, and whether it's hunting or fishing or whether it's just a good hike, just being outside, yeah. um, yes. it just it just feeds the soul. It, it it brings me a kind of peace and it brings me a kind of enjoyment I like to share with my kids, even in my family, uh, that I can't get from anything else. Uh, you know, I can't get it from an amusement park, a roller coaster. I mean, those are all well and good, but just being out there yeah. is a kind of church that that I could go to every day. And uh, I appreciate Absolutely. you. Yeah. Um, on a personal note, is there any way you could possibly, you know, as you get ready to end your time there in Congress? Could you help us at Connecting Vets meet people on the Rules Committee or meet anyone? Uh, I think of Representative Sessions from Texas or other folks. I mean, could you help make some introductions for us so we could further this story and find out a little bit more about how the medicinal research angle could be furthered? 
Yeah, we'll uh, just, I've got your contact info. I will get it to our staff and uh, we'll get them working on that and see if we can make that introduction as it is. I know uh, Pete uh, very well. He's from Texas. I'm, of course, right next door in New Mexico. And I can always ask. That doesn't mean that he'll answer because sometimes the, the question's uh, even above his pay level. But uh, let me have our staff that you communicated with to set up this uh, interview. Uh, and we'll we'll have them get in touch and find out what, what it is that we can do to help. Mm, would love that. Would love that. Would also love the top three reasons I should visit the great state of New Mexico. What are they? Uh, number one, just the fascinating cultures and people. We've got 400 years of Native Americans, Hispanics, uh, Anglos, uh, all races. We've got uh, a significant black population and Asian. And we just got 400 years of getting along together so just the, the culture is is fantastic we also have the most fabulous scenic sites in the entire world uh you would you would want to see that and then the third reason i'd come right now i drive all the way down from albuquerque to las cruces uh, all the way through there you're going to be smelling those green chilies roasting in the air uh, put green chilies on your your hamburgers uh, you're going to find that you'll never go back uh, so the the food, the people, and the magnificent vistas, those are the reasons you want to visit here. Outstanding, Congressman. And as a guy that went to Arizona State and drove back to my hometown in Maryland a couple different times, I went by way of New Mexico, and I'll vouch for the vistas. I mean, I forget what route I went, but mountains were purple and orange, and at sunset there were like... You know, the purple hues come out at sunset, but then during the bright of the day, you know, the rocks look reddish at times and can look orange. I mean, it almost, parts of it reminded me of Coyote and Roadrunner, you know, the cartoon. Yes, I mean, it, it does. There's, <laughs> that's uh, how it looks, exactly. Oh, just absolutely beautiful. And uh, hey, great talking to you. You're one heck of a storyteller. I thank you for sharing with me, uh, you know, your visions of the Vietnam era and what it was like to serve back then and your visions of future treatments that we can give, uh, you know, the great men and women that are serving our country today. Congressman Steve Pierce from New Mexico. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for coming on Vet Store. My pleasure. Keep up the great work. Have a great day. And that'll do it. So until next time, may your stories always be good and your beers always cold. I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll talk to you again on Vet Story. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.